true happiness doesn't come from self-gratification and having the biggest car and the fastest this and the biggest home and all that nonsense. It really comes from putting a smile on another person's face. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen, so let's get into it. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen. I'm excited to have my co-host today, who is Jim Spano. He's the founder and managing director of Spano Partners, which has been in business for, what, over 30 years? Is that correct? Correct. In first started in real estate and then in the solar space. And also there's a philanthropy arm of Spano Partners. I was really interested of reading about the project that you worked on in Haiti. So Jim, can you talk more about Spano Partners? What got you interested in entrepreneurship and in real estate and then kind of transitioning to solar? And I, I know that those are a lot of questions at the same time. Okay, but. sure, no problem. <laughs> Actually, I started the, uh, my career in the finance industry and ran a financial planning firm for almost 30 years. When I sold it and tried to retire and found that I got too bored and couldn't stay retired, me and my brother got together and took our, the proceeds from the sales of our businesses. He had sold his business at about the same time. And we reinvested in the real estate business back in 2006. By the time 2008, nine came and Lehman went under and the world went upside down. We had a significant amount of our assets invested in development, uh, real estate land development, which was the hardest hit during that time period. So we had about a 72% loss in our portfolio. We had more debt than we had equity at that point. Yes. So we had to renegotiate with banks. And at that time, the banks weren't really foreclosing because of uh, the difficulties in the markets. Um, so they worked with us and it enabled us. In one of my projects, we were putting a solar field to feed a mall that we were developing. And when Target was our anchor at the time and the Lehman went under, when they terminated their contract with us, we had a $26 million property sure. that had a $11.5 million loan on it and was reappraised as farmland when the approvals got terminated, or the leases. And as a result, we had a $6.5 million evaluation and yes. uh, being underwater so much. But we had to do a workout, and that's how I got in the solar business. Sure. Um, I was building that small solar field and backfeeding it into the mall. It was a three-quarter megawatt field. And marketing is the first all-green mall in the country. And uh, when that all fell apart, what I did is I took the small solar field, I significantly expanded it. I entered into a sale agreement with uh, NJR to purchase that development. And then I used those proceeds to pay down my principal, used the ground lease to cover my debt service, got the loan back into a performing loan status. Bank was happy. I was happy. Loved the end result and realized I could do this with other properties. So I took sure. all of our other properties and I started redeveloping the second phase of a two-phase industrial park that we had completed the first phase and we were just starting the second phase, couldn't sell a single unit, converted that into a 12 and a half megawatt solar field, sure. was able to satisfy all of our lenders and generate a significant ground lease again that provided a significant amount of income. We said, oh, that was great. So we went across our portfolio and we started building all over the state and became the largest privately owned utility scale solar developer in the state. And you've developed it around 300 megawatts of utility-scale projects, predominantly in the, in the Northeast, specifically in New Jersey, is that? Actually, we've transacted about 300 megawatts, sure. so I've either self-developed or co-developed with other developers or, or even EPC contractors or, or, in some instances, even investors. And I led that initiative in getting a project up to the NTP, 
and I got about 300 and something megawatt at 2 NTP, fully financed sure. and out in the market. And all of that has either been built or is under construction, let's say about 95% of it. Definitely, which is pretty amazing. And, and obviously, Jim is also very active in policy work specifically in New Jersey, but also I know you've, you've done a lot in New York. You've kind of answered this question. How has your real estate background helped with the development of utility scale solar, which you mentioned, obviously, about the land development opportunities? There's a lot of similarities. I, I actually think real estate development is a lot more complicated oh, than solar development. Yeah, I, and I we think, see a lot of people, I apologize, in the real estate industry who then do move into solar because it's just a natural sort of fit. Sure. And a lot of those people become my uh, colleagues and co-developers <laughs> yes. um, because they, it's you know a lot of real estate people like myself that have developed real estate. I learned the hard way when the solar industry was just being developed in New Jersey. And I learned all the difficulties. Having the finance background and then the real estate background, going into the solar, the combination of the skill set from understanding the financing and the impact on solar development that financing has, and then the underlying construction issues to ensure that we keep our lenders and that we have a project that's actually financeable, which is where you create your value because then you can lever it up. That's pretty much the combination of those skill sets, I think, is what's enabled me to reach the success levels that I have. Definitely. And talking about success, what are the key aspects of developing a successful project. You know, it's funny because you talk to a lot of developers and they say, oh yeah, I have this great project. And obviously, <laughs> as we know, Jim, a lot of those projects are not great projects. And, you know, someone who's developed a lot of successful projects, what do you look for as key aspects of developing a successful utility scale project? Okay. First, I should clear up that we quite a significant amount of CNI DG as well. Oh, sure. Um, I apologize. And, yeah. And we're getting into actually a, a large scale residential business as well. But I think the key to successful solar development, again, is understanding the impact that the manner in which your project is developed is viewed from a lender's perspective. Very easy to get equity investors, particularly some of the more veterans. They understand how to get a project past where the developer can get it. But the big real issue for the equity investor is being able to lever it up with a lender. If you can't lever it up, then the cost of capital for an all equity pretty much significantly reduces the value that the developer can get out of the project for the work that they've done. Definitely. If you develop it properly and it's financeable and you can highly leverage it because of the way that the contracts and so forth are written, that enables you to get a significant higher value for the project and the developer actually has a far more successful practice. Sure. And I think one thing, too, that I've noticed, Jim, the many great things about you is your boundless energy, obviously, <laughs> just always out there and meeting and always talking about what you're doing. But I think, too, what differentiates you from other developers that I know is that you're actively involved in the policy. You were the founder and president of the New Jersey Grid Supply Association. You're also vice president of the Mid-Atlantic Solar Energy Industry Association. And then you're also on the board of the International Battery and Energy Storage Association. So I really feel like you've taken all those different skill sets and expertise and really some of the major ways I feel like you differentiate 
from other developers. I'm actually surprised when I speak to developers, for example, we're going to actually get into this about the transition of the SREC program in New Jersey. But talking to developers, I'm telling them about the importance of moving <laughs> forward. And you would think that that's their business and that they would know the policy and those sorts of things. Sometimes I feel like developers find a great site for solar, but then don't think about the financing or the offtake, whether it economically actually is viable based on doing a very simplistic uh, financial model. So, you know, that's an interesting. And when I earlier said that we've developed or co-developed over 300 megawatt worth of projects, that's primarily why, because there's so many people out there, lawyers and accountants and real estate developers that try to get into the business and they have enough of a skill set to get to a certain point and to actually get a project up and running. The problem is that they don't have the background understanding to develop the project in a way that they can create the most value for themselves. And that's where I can come in and co-develop a project with the developer, actually make them more money and make myself a, a significant value as well. When we talked earlier about finance and real estate having a significant impact on my ability and my success level in the industry, I think you've hit on the third leg of that three-leg stool, which is understanding the policy and the markets that you're working in and understanding, again, how to develop a project with the knowledge of what's happening by the time your project gets built, because you can start developing a project today under one program that won't get completed until another program's in place, and then you, you've anticipated economic benefits from a program that is no longer available. available sure. So, and one of the important aspects that uh, some of me and my colleagues focus on is getting involved in the policy, getting involved with the legislature and with the PUC, BPU, whatever the governing body is for the energy in, in a given state. By getting involved in that, it not only helps to promote the entire industry, but it puts you in a position of knowing what the future is going to look like, which enables you to develop a project far more effectively and create far more value knowing. And I'll give you an example. When I chaired the transition team that wrote the bill that Murphy signed back in May, as we were working with the team to develop that policy, recognizing the direction that the state was going, I was able to begin accumulating assets that would have the most value when these law got passed. Sure. So I was able to put together a portfolio that I tripled my normal developer fee. And for my investors that are listening, you <laughs> might want to keep that up. But the reality yes. is that you create the value. And if you can create the value and it still makes the economic sense to your investors, then it's a win-win for both the investor and for yourself. Obviously, having as much the highest incentive levels that you can when you develop a project means that you've added more value into that project, which means the investor and yourself will do better and have a far more likelihood of achieving the financial goals that the investment was based on. Definitely, that is huge. I mean, the sophistication that you have, and it's interesting as well, because we'll be talking about solar plus storage, specifically Sonin, which we were talking about before. Can you go into a little bit? It's interesting for me to hear that you're getting involved in residential. You've done distributed energy with CNI. Can you talk a little bit more about what you're... Yeah, you know, I'm not a resi developer. I don't like the onesies, twosies. I'm not a, a nickel seller. I, I like going for the utility scale, and, sure. and if you're going to do it, do it right. In the residential space, that's my intent. I'm not going into the traditional residential business that most developers participate in. My approach is on a much grander scale. I'm working with large aggregation of individual residences. So I'm not going in and developing a sales force that's going to go out and try and bang every homeowner to get a, a small 5, 10 kilowatt sale. I'm going in and working with the home builders, the national home builders, 
and entering into agreements to combine solar plus storage at a significantly lower price by monetizing the storage assets so that we can provide a very powerful PPA price for the residences of the home builders development and then provide them free resiliency so that during sure. the course of storms and, and grid outages, which as we know, this, the 100-year storms and 200-year storms are happening two or three a year now. And then we've experienced obviously Sandy, which is not that long ago. So we have worried. Sandy and we, you, know, you can go to Katrina, you can go all over and, and, sure. and see the kind of devastation that these storms are occurring. Now, to enable people to remain in their homes, to enable people to have the resiliency so that when the grid goes out, Unlike the typical residential solar sale, grid goes out, your solar's worthless on your roof. So all the value of solar is gone when you need it the most, which is Definitely. when you can't get the power from the grid. By using our approach, if the grid's out, we have a renewable source that will have a solar system that will renew a battery storage system and provide power on a continuous basis that's renewable every time the panels recharge those batteries. So you have power generated during the day, excess power that's generated, not used within the load of the home, goes back into the reserves of the battery, which gets you through the night and so forth and so on. So one of the values of my approach to the residential business is I'm approaching it like a utility scale business, Mm -hmm. not like a traditional residential business. Definitely. That that is huge. I mean, it's a totally different perspective. You know, I actually used to work at SolarCity, which obviously was a big residential solar installer. So it's a totally different way of looking at things and, and really exciting to me. I mean, I actually didn't know about this until Jim and I talked before the podcast about specifically Sonin. Not transitioning actually to the New Jersey legislation. Obviously, everyone has been talking about when the SREC program is going to sunset, potentially when's the transition program happening. BP, I think, recently hired a consultant. Can you talk about like your views on, and by the way, Renew Energy and obviously Spano Partners are members of the Mid-Atlantic Solar Energy Industry Association, which is actually having their holiday party on Monday. But I know we've talked a lot about this during our calls and things like that. Can you give your perspective of when you think that the SREC market is going to potentially sunset? Sure. But before I do that, let's tie that into what we spoke about earlier, about developing a project and understanding how policy, aside from finance and and real estate development, how policy affects a developer's business. The reason that we're transitioning from the current program to a new program is because the current program is still a program that's been around for a lot of years. And as the cost of solar has come down, the incentives that are available in the current program are in excess of what's needed to support the goals of the state. So obviously the state has come in and said we need to reduce costs and we'll come up with a new program that has less incentive but still enables the solar industry to continue to grow and and thrive. What that really means is that any projects that you can get in today are going to have more value than projects that you can do tomorrow. So back again to how developers can create the most value for their projects is understanding policy. If you know that the incentives are going to come down, then you can reach out to your customers and your sales force and so forth and use that as a way to help the customer understand that I can give you a much better offer today than I'm going to be able to give you when the program changes. We've actually been going around every time that we have a program change, like when we just recently had the law that was going to close the market and we anticipated that the 15-year SREX were supposed to stop and go to 10 years years. back in May until some crazy decision that was made to extend them all the way up to apparently when a notice was given so that we extended them till October uh, 29th. 29th, 29th, yes. But the bottom line is 
knowing that that was going to change, the more projects that you could get in anticipation of that, the greater the value that you're going to create for yourself and for your customers. Now, going back to what's actually going to happen in New Jersey here, there's a requirement that we sunset the existing program when we hit 5.1% of total retail sales being delivered through the renewable industry. That is into, depending on, on the math you use, because there's not a specific date. What a lot of people don't understand is when you're trying to determine when is that date going to happen, one, it's not a fixed date from a perspective of hitting 5.1%. You don't know what retail sales are until months, months after, after yeah. they've occurred so that you can report them. So we're trying to guess when is that 5.1% really hit as opposed to when do we think it was hit. Definitely. Then you have a second issue of, well, you have so much that's been built you have so much that's in the pipeline, but when do we actually close the market when, I guess the, the big issue is once the BPU has approved a amount of solar projects that they believe will hit that 5.1%, how many of those projects that are approved won't get built? Yes. So it's a real soft thing, but the bottom line is that if we know that through the math, we know that between the pipeline and the as-built we should hit that sometime in, again, depending on the math, between mid-February to mid-March is a fair estimate. But that could change significantly, just like we thought the SREX were going to stop. That's true. For and then suddenly they continued all the way through October 29th. So the state has to be somewhat flexible. They have no choice because there isn't an exact formula we can determine. All right, clock stops this date. So the BPU has quite a bit of discretion. And I believe that both the BPU and the state have been so supportive of our industry, and rightfully so, that they will ensure that solar developers are not crushed or hurt and that the industry is able to continue to grow. So I think adjustments are going to be made to support the commitments that the state is asking us as an industry to meet for them to hit the goals that they've set. Sure. As you mentioned, solar has gone down dramatically, the cost over the past three to five years. I know there's been talk about a transition program because it's easier to do a fixed SRAC program before some sort of rebate. Can you talk a little bit about potentially the new incentive? And uh, obviously, we know it's still very early, but we know, obviously, that um, they want a lower rate bear cost. Obviously, solar is a lot cheaper than it was before, so have a incentive that's... Sure. I think the first thing that we all have to think about before I answer the question is that we talk about solar coming down. And when you have a 70, 80% reduction in cost over a five-year period, how much further can it realistically go down? Definitely. Then you combine that with the fact that we have an ITC that's being reduced. Then you combine that with the fact that there's this uncertainty in tariffs and additional costs. And then the uncertainty of interconnection costs as the grid becomes more and more unstable as we have more and more penetration of solar before we get the storage in there to stabilize the grid. So I think there's a lot of increased costs that we can expect. And it's a reversal of the trend that we've seen for the last five yes. years. So I think the first thing that we really have to look at is we're transitioning into a program to lower the cost of incentives, which is appropriate. But we have to be careful that we don't lower them so far and even that's controversial because if we do lower them too much and the industry slows down a little bit, BPU has the authority to increase it. Yes. But if they've increased it, they really don't have the ability to decrease it. So I think that's going to have some impact on how this is viewed from both the regulatory side and the policy side. Um, now, as far as what we think, there's obviously negotiations and discussions going on between different stakeholder groups and the state and the, and the governor's office and the BPU. Um, and there's a lot of stakeholders involved that 
have concerns about the what we call the legacy projects, which is the projects that were built at a much higher cost and required the higher SRECs in order to make them feasible and, and to stay whole and not go into a default with their lenders. And bear in mind, a lot of people don't realize that it's not just a matter of saying, oh, so some investors will lose a little bit of money. What they have to realize is that there's thousands and thousands of homeowners out there. There's municipalities, there's school boards. Everybody says, well, the incentives were too high. But what you have to realize is that when we bid these public bids and we help lower everybody's taxes by lowering the electricity costs for the schools, so you literally lower the budget, which means that you have to pay less into it as a homeowner in that district. That's the part that people don't realize is all of the municipalities, all the utility authorities, we had several counties that, as we know in New Jersey, went into a default under that mass tax sunlight general lawsuit, and the counties ended up coming and having to backstop the guarantee. So what they did is they redid a bond offering at a lower cost of capital to enable them to be able to keep the projects whole. But now if you take away the SRECs and you lower them again, or you lower the SACP, or you do things to lower the economics – they're going to go back into default on all those bonds. Definitely. So you're going to have the League of Municipalities. You're going to have a lot of people, the AARP, supporting all of the elderly and all of the individual homeowners. This isn't just a matter of some commercial developers making less money. And that's the way some people are looking at this. Sure. This is a matter of the residents of the state of New Jersey who committed to help the state and themselves go to a renewable future being turned around and saying, now we're going to penalize you for supporting the state. So we have to be real careful when we go into this transition program that we provide sufficient economic benefits to those legacy projects to ensure that we don't hurt the very people that supported the industry and helped the state meet the goals that they set. So to me, that's the very first and the highest priority. These are great points. I think it's so true. (laughs) And then beyond that, you have to look at the new build. Now, sure, we can build for a lot less expensive today for a short period until ITC reduces and the tariff impacts, which we don't know what's going to happen there when we know better what will happen. And you're talking about, obviously, that for our listeners or the Mavericks, basically the tariffs on panels and then inverters as well, steel, any sort of raw materials. That's right. The more tariffs you put in, the more expensive everything Everything becomes. becomes And it affects anytime you're doing new builds, any type of tariff is going to affect some down your supply chain is going to have some impact that's going to result in a financial impact to you. So yeah, the tariffs, the ITC. So now as we come into this interim program, what the focus really is coming up with a short-term two to three-year period, which will give the state the ability to develop their master energy plan and incorporate a much more comprehensive approach to the energy transition to a renewable future. So in anticipation of all that, The interim program is really just going to be designed to keep the industry whole and alive, keep the jobs going. And to accomplish that, we'll have a lower cost incentive plan, but only for two or three years so that by the time the ITC gets hit and we have the impact of these tariffs, we can adjust again in the permanent program. One other thing that I think about when you consider this is that all of the extra costs and the long-term interest here can easily be mitigated with a more flexible approach to a long-term program. The interim program, for the most part, we're looking at either a fixed, we're looking at staying within some type of an SREC framework so that we don't have a long period of redevelopment of a new program, policy, 
stakeholder meetings. I mean, that, that's a one to three year period before we can come up with a permanent. Like in Massachusetts, it took them three years and they've just recently actually come out and we still don't know what blocks we're in. Definitely. So we really don't want that to happen in New Jersey. And, and Jim's talking about Massachusetts had an SREC program. Now they're really moving to a feed-in tariff, which is called the SMART program. And from a legislative perspective, that takes a very long time to transition from an SREC program to the SMART program because it's a totally different incentive. And uh, sure. and so, that took like, what, basically two to three years. And we're, as you said, we're not sure about the blocks. And, yeah. So I, I think the New Jersey's interim program, we're looking to stay within that regulatory framework that exists. Now it's a matter of how do we lower the cost of ratepayers? So there is an internal argument within the industry as to whether we go with a fixed SREC, in which case you'd have a lower priced SREC, but it would be fixed for the entire period so that it's contracted revenue and it can be easily financed and leveraged. On the other hand, you have a merchant approach, which there's already a system in place for that. And what there's discussion with the merchant approach of having some type of a floor like Massachusetts did when they converted from SREC 1 to SREC 2. And by providing that floor, you'd have a, a lower SACP, so you'd have lower high upside, but you'd also have a fixed downside. So you can underwrite against that downside. Sure. So there's debate still going on. And the only thing I think that we can reasonably rely on is that you were likely to have a 7 maximum 10-year SREC program on an interim basis. And then beyond that, I think that the likelihood is that we'll look for some type of a, we don't like to use the word feed-in tariff, but some type of a a fixed tariff that fairly compensates the developer and assists the state in meeting the goals that it's set. Definitely. This is great perspective on the New Jersey market and just in general. I think a lot of people, as you said, just look at things from one perspective. But there's a lot of people who are impacted by this decision, and there are a lot of variables that are changing within the solar industry that will impact the cost to develop and build these projects. So. Yeah, I see. That's why there's so much debate within the industry. You have different stakeholders with conflicting interests, and that's true. you know you have the older developments and the people that have existed. A homeowner that bought a system six years ago is very much impacted by the program you're going to provide for an interim program or for a homeowner tomorrow. So we have to consider the commitments that people made to support our industry and relied on a certain revenue in order to make them whole. For example, if you paid $6 a watt to build a system on your home and you pay for it out of cash, and then you went to your bank and you financed it like most people did, now you have a fixed monthly payment. And if the SRECs go down, your actually monthly payment is higher than the revenue you're getting, and it actually costs you to help the state go to a renewable future. That's just unfair and Uh, and wrong. It definitely is. and Obviously, one of the quickest growing sectors or fastest growing sectors of solar is community solar. And obviously, New Jersey is talking about, well, they basically put out some legislation about the community solar pilot. Have you been following that? Is that something of interest to you where you basically, it's a utility scale project where you have residential customers as, as your off-taker instead of a selling uh, in to In fact, we recently hired the former executive director for sales and marketing from NRG to support our desire to go into the community solar market. Obviously we have we're one of the most experienced uh, utility-scale developers in the state. And the opportunity to monetize the power through a PPA as opposed to through a merchant grid services, I'm sorry, a merchant grid sale, is very attractive to us and our investors. So I think the state is on the right track. They're, one of my big peeves with community solar was we have to open these markets for lower-income people. Let me help 
our audience understand something here, and, and a lot of people don't think this through completely. What we did in our state for the last eight years is we set up a program that, because it was merchant, it requires credit capability. In other words, if you don't have a FICO score, you're not able to get financing. You either have to be able to afford to buy a system or have a strong enough credit rating to be able to finance a system. Well, low and middle income people in our state, they couldn't do that. They didn't have the resources. So they've been left out of this market. Now think about the impact of that. We give incentives that are paid for through your societal benefit charge, through your utility bill. So we give those incentives and we pass them on to the wealthiest people who net meter, and as a result, they don't even pay into the societal benefit charge. So they don't contribute towards it, but they get all the benefit Benefit from it. The people that are contributing towards the cost of this are the low and middle income people that can't qualify for solar. So not only do they have to pay the cost so that the wealthy people can continue to have the economic benefits, but we really slam it to them by saying, and by the way, when those people not only don't pay for these incentives and get all the value, but even beyond that, what they're effectively doing is by net metering, that means that they're not paying distribution and transmission charges. So not only are they not paying for the incentives that low and middle income people are paying for, and the government, by the way, because the government doesn't get that. So all those benefits go to wealthy people at the cost of low income, middle income, and our government that supports the low and middle income people. Now, then you add that the absolute insult that we're going to allow these people to avoid transmission and distribution charges, and who's going to pay for those charges? Again, those low and middle income people, because the cost to the utility stays the same to maintain their lines and so forth. And if the wealthy people aren't paying into it because they went solar and they've reversed the direction of their meter so they don't get charged for it, that gets passed on to these low and middle income people. Talk about a screw job. We got to stop that. And I'm really proud of the state that they came in and they recognized that this is a problem and they took the first step. And I do think they need to go further, but they took the first step by requiring that developers of community solar must have a percentage of that project subscribed to low and middle income people. Now, you can't require 100% because if you require 100%, you never get anything developed because you can never get them financed. Sure. But by having a financeable majority and a minority of, so that's the first step. Ultimately, the real solution for the state is to eliminate the credit risk of low and middle income people by passing it on to where it exists today, which is with the utility. We already have programs in place to ensure that those low and middle income people will never have their power turned off, that they'll always have power. Now, we've already taken that credit risk and we've built it into the rate base. Rate base yes. So why now not allow that to continue and let the community solar developer rely on that. You could lower the cost of the incentives. And now every low and middle income people is treated the same exact as a high income person. And we stabilize that market. So instead of now the low middle income people can also avoid the T&D charge, it becomes a far more equitable solution than we have today. Oh, definitely. And I think what the percentage of the offtake is for it's it's forty percent, right, Correct. for the new program. And um, like, where are they as far as obviously the regs came out in October? When can you actually start applying for your project? My suggestion, recognizing that companies from all over the country are coming into New Jersey to try and take advantage of this community solar program, but also recognizing there's only seventy five megawatts, which is really small over a three year period as well. Well, it's seventy five a year. Yeah, years. yes. So what you'll have is you have all these national people coming in. Like we get letters every day because we're also landowners, we're real estate developers. So we get letters every day from solar companies from all over the country saying, you have property, we'd love to buy your property. Now, what they're all doing is they're buying these properties to propose community solar. Well, 
you'll end up with four or 500 megawatt worth of community solar each year trying to get into the program. You'll have only 75 approved. So how many people are spending fortunes developing projects when the likelihood is 10 or 15% of them are actually going to get approved? So it's a huge high-risk business right now. And it's real important that people that want to get involved in community solar in New Jersey understand what the criteria will be in order to determine which ones are going to be approved and which ones aren't. Now, there isn't criteria that's out there on the market today. So there's no written guidance that you can say, oh, let me develop a project and try and meet as many, check as many of those boxes as I can so that I have a greater chance of getting approved. So what you have to really do today is rely on your experience, your knowledge, and by way of example, when I ran the New Jersey Solar Grid Supply Association and originally founded it, it was founded in order to protect millions of dollars of stranded costs from developers that had developed on green lands and farmland and so forth that the new law says we can no longer build on those. And then there was some grandfathering that was intended and BPU felt that the intent didn't matter. It was the actual language. And so we ended up in a lawsuit with the BPU. And during the course of that lawsuit, we learned what the real criteria that the BPU looks at in order to determine why these original criteria to set up the programs were made. So you can pretty much use that knowledge and say that, well, when they start approving community solar, if they have 500 megawatt applied for and only can approve 75 megawatt, they're going to look back to that criteria and say, what's the best for the state? What achieves the maximum goals of the state? And if you understand that, you have a far more likelihood of getting your community solar program approved and a far more likelihood of not having a stranded cost and developing a project that will never get Definitely. built. You know, this is interesting because this is actually sounds very similar to a conversation you and I had uh, maybe two or three years ago about subsection R. That's right. Exactly. And look what happened. Yeah. How many subsection R projects got approved? Zero. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yes. Three years ago, we passed a law to provide for subsection R, and it doesn't even exist today. Now, technically, community solar falls under subsection, subsection R. R. Yes. So finally, four years? Yes. So, you know, you have to be realistic when you're developing – and you can't – this optimism that the industry is great, so whatever I do is going to work out, be careful. That's oh, not definitely. the case. It's interesting because on subsection R, this is kind of goes back to the point that you mentioned. I was talking to a lot of developers, and I could – even though the BP wouldn't provide the number of the queue, I easily <laughs> thought it was like 400 or 500 megawatts. And obviously, part of subsection R was that we're not going to – have a lot of projects because we don't want to obviously oversupply the SREC market where then it would lower the prices. And I know we had conversations about this. You also talked to me about the lawsuit. So it's interesting kind of how some things correlate with other other, other things as well. So that that's really great perspective. And kind of switching gears too, obviously you're involved in a lot of different things. And I'm curious about uh, your new company that you founded, Radiant REIT, which is basically providing loans for solar project. It's interesting because, you know, REIT's very common in real estate and you're trying to basically bring it to solar. Can you talk a little bit about this company you founded? Sure. First, most people that are in the industry understand that the immature nature of the industry, which is now starting to become mature, but the immature nature of the industry over the last dozen years has been such that you can't get long-term financing. Basically, what we've been doing in our industry for the last seven, eight years is financing, the analogy that I use is you're financing a home with a car loan. So the amortization is so high that there's very little cash flow when you have a very economically beneficial project, but it doesn't have the cash flow because you're paying down the capex of the project or the capital expense of the project 
over a five-year period when it's a 30-year asset. So what Radiant Reed did is it came to the market with a solution that matches the asset life with the term on the loan so that you can amortize it like a home over the course of the asset life. That enables us to have a significantly lower monthly debt service cost. Now, the first area that we knew that we could significantly impact is the tax equity market. Understanding that tax equity investors are now, in the last year, two years, have been hitting that five, six-year period where they're looking to flip under their various contracts. And then what happens is they can't flip because, let's say you have a $10 million project and you're trying to get a $6 million loan. If you're trying to amortize $6 million over seven, 10 years, combine that monthly principal payment along with your interest payment, and it actually exceeds the revenue that you're getting in. So how do you go to a bank? You have no debt service coverage ratio. ratio, In fact, you have a negative coverage ratio. So effectively, it means you can't get Get a loan. Now, if you can't get a loan, let's think about what happens now. That tax equity investor that was getting double-digit returns continues to get double-digit returns, basically taking all the value out of the project so that the developer who expected to finally get paid when it flips, ends up giving all of the value back to that tax equity investor. You need to get that guy out of there and replace double-digit returns with low single-digit debt costs. So by doing that, by providing a product that will enable that, we're taking a stranded tax equity market and providing these developers with a way. It does two things. It provides the developers a way to get those tax equity investors out and to get the value that they expected. But it also provides the tax equity investors with the way to get their capital back that they expected. Even though they're getting high returns, they have, within different funds and so forth, they have objectives. So they're not looking to leave that capital out there any longer than they originally intended, and therefore they want to get their capital back as well. So it's a solution that solves both. Now, where we differ, where we're able to do that and the banks aren't, is because this has been such an immature industry and solar systems have been viewed as equipment, which really, realistically, that's all they are. Yes. Okay. Under law, they're considered infrastructure other than the panels. And that was the Hannon and Armstrong ruling. Mm-hmm. Now, other people tried to start REITs four or five years ago, two, three years ago, another round, and they all failed. Why did they fail? They failed for the same reason that the yield coast failed. What they tried to do was go out and say, I'm a lender. I'm also an equity holder. So I'm going to compete with you, but I also want to lend to you. And as a result, it was highly, highly difficult. And then because you can only have 25% of non-real estate assets in a real estate investment trust, well, the Hannon Armstrong ruling established that the panels don't count. And if the panels are 25% or more of the cost of the project, which they were for many years, suddenly you can't qualify for a REIT because of the nature of the equity. equity yes. But what we did is we approached it not as an equity REIT. We approached it as a mortgage REIT, a debt REIT. So now... You know, we hired the best law firms, the best accountants. We have Norton Fulbright and, and Cohen Resnick. And we went out to the IRS and requested private letter rulings that establish that the solar system is infrastructure other than the panel. But since we're financing debt, the leasehold interest or the simple fee interest in the property enables us to loan against that property. And we're no longer loaning against equity. We're doing a loan against the revenue. So... What we're now doing is we're saying that the cost of the panel doesn't impact the value Value. that we're loaning against. We're loaning against an appraised value Value, of not the panel, but of the revenue. It's just an income basis. So 
you know, we've solved that issue. And then there's also the cross indemnification and cross collateralization between the tax equity investor and the lender. And there's always that conflict of who wants to get the first rights at those assets and how do we secure the tax equity investor if the lender forecloses and takes all the assets. And then he has a charge back and there's, you know, all kinds of bad things that can happen. So by prearranging tax equity with debt and having documentation that's already been pre-agreed on between the tax equity and the lender, now the sponsor equity guy can come in with the assurance that when we underwrite this project that we don't have any issues between conflicts between tax equity and lenders. You know, you use subrogation agreements and so forth. So we're now able to go in and lend against these assets. In some instances, we can lend 100% of your cost because we're lending against value not cost. cost yes. Once the system's operational, it's no longer a construction loan, it's the term loan. Definitely. So I think we've provided the unique solution, that, and, and we're just one, I think, much larger developers that can, like S-Power, they just came out with a $500 million bond offering. So they could finance long-term through different means, but you can't do that with a 10, 20, 30, 50, even $60 million project. Definitely. Start to hit the $100 million plus, and depending on the, the nature of the portfolio, whether sure. it's a single project, whether it's a portfolio of DG, that will all impact it. But we're able to come into the industry and really serve that market between $10 million and $150 million that currently has no means to finance on a long-term basis. We're providing that means now, which also, even the large guys that can do a bond offering – Realize it takes years to build the portfolio of all equity before you can do that. that, So we can now provide a means where they can have debt and use much lower equity to significantly lever their returns. Now they can basically have a a significantly lower basis for for their investment. Sure. I mean, that's huge. It it fulfills a huge need in the market that's not there. Obviously, and lowering the cost of financing, we find, is like one of the highest expenses for projects. Now where we know that the hard costs cannot continue to be reduced. So now we're all looking at ways to reduce soft costs. And that's the direction the industry should be going. And understanding that, we're just one of the solutions to try and assist the industry in reducing those soft costs and enabling a higher penetration at lower cost to the ratepayer. Definitely. And it's an amazing solution to an issue that's been around for a long time. As a developer for all those years, the issues that I faced have educated me. Now I know what the industry needs, and now we provide solutions that obviously help the industry and also help my own business grow. Sure. I have actually two more questions, and this has been amazing, and I probably could talk to you for hours and hours. <laughs> but can you talk a little bit about the philanthropy work that the Spano Family Foundation does? I know, you're, as you always say, you're a philanthropist at heart, and I know it's a big part of the Spano partners as part of your business. Yes, what uh, me and my family actually all retired when we sold our businesses. And we didn't go right into the real estate business. We retired and we decided that we'd chill out. And it wasn't long before you realized that that's not the right way. <laughs> and to by live. the way, I can't imagine Jim chilling out. We joke about, <laughs> I joked before a long time ago, if you're ever going to retire, because I see all the excitement and energy whenever I see you. So we tried and we failed. It was probably my biggest failure in my career. But when we realized that retirement wasn't the future for us, and we went back into business, our goal at that point, we were all, we had sufficient financial means, we were independent and so forth. So our goal was to try and make more money by leveraging our assets and be able to provide more, more of our philanthropic needs. We have a strong interest. We, for many years, we've been supporting different orphanages and villages in Africa and Haiti and third world countries. And if you've ever visited one, 
it changes your heart. And you realize that the amazing wealth we have here in the U.S., even our poor people, what we call low-income people, yes, definitely, they're living the life of a king relative to people in Swaziland, Africa, or Jeremy, Haiti, or even Port-au-Prince in the capital of Haiti. I mean, sure. poverty is horrible. So what our goals, despite accumulating wealth, we don't... As a young man, yeah, I had my private limo and my little yacht and all that crap. And then when you mature in your own lives, you, you recognize. And I think most wealthy, successful business people come to a point in their lives where they realize that true happiness doesn't come from self-gratification and having the biggest car and the fastest this and the biggest home and all that nonsense. It really comes from putting a smile on another person's face. I try to help people understand the greatest joys human beings have and the greatest love that they share is the love of their children. And when you think about it, that's the most unselfish love there is. The only people that 90% of our, 95, 99% of our population give to with no expectation of return. Like if you help your buddy out in the back of your mind, he owes me a favor, right? He owes me one. I helped him out. He owes me one. With your children, you don't think like that. Your children, it's like I did it for them with no expectation of anything yes. back. And where do you get the greatest joy out of your life? From the people that you give to with no expectation back. Because the people that you give to with an expectation to get back disappoint you. How many times you've loaned money to people? I mean, we all know that. If you loan money to a friend, you've given it to them. (laughs) Yes. And that's because we expect them to actually pay us back. back, Now, we know that they're in desperate needs. They wouldn't come to us for a loan if they weren't desperate. Mm -hmm. So we help them out, and then we actually expect them to pay us back. back. Yes. Now, if people could take the life approach they have with their children and think of everybody they meet on the street as one of their children. Can you imagine the joy you can bring to your own life? Even simple things like a smile to somebody that's walking by you that you can see isn't happy or a a word of encouragement for somebody in the office. It doesn't have to be monetary. So I think the key to true happiness in this life, and everybody, everybody thinks you're chasing for happiness by having the fastest boat, the biggest home, you know, the coolest car. We think that acknowledgement from our friends and our colleagues and so forth that we're successful and that we're important people and that we're like we're really cool people we think that's what's going to satisfy us it's so silly what really satisfies us is knowing that we made somebody else's life better easier the joy that you get as i said from helping a child in a bad situation whether it's with words or whatever that may be that's the greatest joy you're ever going to get and you need to start sharing that with your neighbor Definitely. That, that is amazing life advice. And I, I totally agree with you. And then it's amazing what the foundation has done. So my last question, this show is also not just about solar, but entrepreneurship. And you've talked a little bit about it, your story. What suggestions do you have for people who, who want to be an entrepreneur and be successful? <laughs> um, That's a loaded question. I know that could sure be. Is. <laughs> I think to be a successful entrepreneur, you've got to be willing to take a risk. In fact, you have to expect to fail. The greatest fear, what keeps people, what I call chained to their chair in an office or in an employment contract, is insecurity. Everybody wants to know that we, just like the banks when they loan money, they want to know that we have contracted revenue. Well, we want to know we have a contracted paycheck. <laughs> um, if you can have enough confidence in yourself to recognize that if I fail, I'm going to be no worse off than I was before I failed or at some point in my life, that enabled me to have the opportunity to try to succeed. So I think the trick is to overcome the fear of failure. Take a chance. It's interesting because I've had conversations with friends where I've said, uh, you know, when they talk with me, that the first thing I usually talk about is all the times I've lost money. I mean, I've lost millions in deals, in single deals. And people say, 
geez, do I, do I want to be you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah. That's not, not really a nice thing to think about. And then I make them understand, but look, if I can lose $5 million in a deal, it means I can make $5 million. In fact, it means that I can make more than $5 million to be able to afford to lose and risk $5 million. Yes. So if you're not willing to take that risk and you require security, then entrepreneurship really isn't suitable for your personality. But if you have confidence in yourself and you can accept failure graciously, then I think the entrepreneurial road in life is, is certainly the most rewarding. I mean, I've, Definitely. silly enough, I, I, my first job was, I was a, a Russian linguist in the, in the Air Force playing I spy over in Europe. Got out of the Air Force and who the hell wants to hire some guy that can speak Russian and military Russian at that. Yes. So I took a job. I was actually a single parent at that young age, so I had to take a job. As I took my job, I started studying to become an independent insurance salesman. You know, a young 23 years old, that seemed like the smartest thing to do. That lasted about a year and a half. I was actually the youngest sales manager to ever be promoted in, within Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. So it was a pretty proud thing, and everybody expected me to move up the ranks of the corporate world. And instead, I quit, and I started my own business. The reason that I did that is I recognized that while I was in the Air Force, as important as my job was, as successful as I was, I got more promotions than any of my friends. And yet I still left the Air Force at the same rank that I went in at. Because as many times as I got a promotion, I'd get a demotion because I just really wasn't good at taking orders that didn't make sense. And if I'm smarter than you, you're not going to get to tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah. So as a young kid, I, I didn't have the greatest attitude with, with superiors. Sure. And I recognized very early on that I'm not really good with taking orders and when you have that type of an attitude, it's probably a better idea to go and work for yourself. Exactly. So from the time I was 24 till 60 today, I've never worked for anybody else. It's always been my future is in my own hands. Definitely. And I, I totally agree with you. And I think, too, another important thing is sales as well and sales experience. Because I think, you know, if you're a good salesman. Then you can survive anywhere. Any you could drop a good salesman off anywhere on the planet and Come back a couple of years later and they'll own wherever you drop them off. <laughs> Definitely. And I think the most successful people actually fail the most and then right. learn from that experience and then adapt. And that's kind of what you were talking about as that's well. That's exactly right. Some of your best experiences in education comes from your failures. From failures. If any of Although the I'd suggest that Try and learn from other people's failures if you can. Oh, yeah, first. definitely. That, that's the smartest thing to learn from other failures. This has been an amazing show. I really appreciate, Jim, your time here. If anyone on the podcast wants to reach out to you, what's the best way? Uh, they can reach out uh, through email at jimspano at spanopartners.com. Great. Well, thank you again, Jim. This has been an amazing episode. Thank you for supporting the Solar Maverick podcast and uh, look forward to continued conversations. I feel like there's so many different things that we could talk about in the future. And I thank you for the opportunity to share with the rest of the industry. As you know, I believe all ships rise with an incoming tide. So anything I can do to assist other folks within the industry, I think I have a pretty good reputation for doing that. And I'm more than happy to help uh, any of the Mavericks on the line that might need some advice or private feel free to reach out to me by email. Yeah, and, and Jim is serious about that. I know like even my interactions with him, Jim's always, you know, really helpful, always providing advice and suggestions. And, you know, he is the original Solar Maverick. <laughs> so um, I'm excited to have him on the show and, and definitely thank you again. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes and Stitcher Radio and leave us a five-star review. That helps us build this community, and that's what we're all about right now. 
building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can. 